While Montessori and Froebel share a number of common traits, in particular their emphasis on the individual needs of each and every child, they radically differ on a wide range of issues. In this podcast, the fourth in our ongoing series, we sit down with Hugh Weber, a Montessori parent, connector, catalyst, and community builder, as well as Charlotte Wood, a primary guide at Bondec and a thought leader in this space. Today, we will discuss how Montessori enacted a transformation in education, and more specifically, how her system of learning was designed to encapsulate what is traditionally conceived as the kindergarten year. Ms. Wood. So, um, Maria Montessori um, developed what we now call the primary Montessori program, um, which is traditionally three through six-year-olds in one classroom with all three ages. Um, And the reason the primary classroom includes three to six-year-olds is because those were the children who were available to Maria Montessori. Older than that, they would have been already in school. And younger than that, they would have been at home with mom when this was developed um, in the early 1900s. So um, at this age group, um, there was no daycare or early childhood education available for these children. And so what we now call kindergarten or the third year Montessori or the final um, year in the classroom um, is not a precursor to elementary. Instead, it was developed to be the end of this three-year cycle um, in which the child would have stayed in the same classroom with the same teacher with um, rotating children as some children aged out and some children, new children aged in. Um, Now, in our traditional programs, at some point along the line, um, teachers and um, education professionals figured out that first grade, when children started school, children were not ready for school. And um, many children had been in a daycare setting or primarily at home with mom, a primary caregiver, and they weren't ready to begin learning at age six and first grade. So kindergarten was developed as almost a remedial program of getting children ready to sit and think and um, be able to listen to information presented to them and regurgitate it at a later date. Um, And it's hard that in um, our classrooms, we use the same term um, of kindergarten um, because it covers completely different information. It's the end of a process of work, a time when the child develops incredible problem-solving, critical thinking skills, a time when the child develops um, leadership and self-confidence and is able to affect positive change in their classroom, where in a traditional environment, um, they're basically learning um, much more primary skills um, that are pre-learning skills. Great, great. And so maybe uh, we can switch to Hugh Weber now, and he can discuss this. But maybe to frame it up for Hugh is like there's this idea that traditional education you have a wide range of different people with different backgrounds all placed in the same environment, and yet they have one curriculum for everyone. And whereas Montessori, it's a personalized approach for each and every child. And that's a really, really stark contrast, and it's one that most of us grew up with. 
So maybe you can speak to that. Right. So I, I was a I was a public school educated student and uh, and started in a traditional kindergarten class. Um, had had the privilege of a home based preschool uh, uh, environment, but had joined as a traditional. Um, school student. My wife has a, a deep background in public school education, so we didn't come to the table necessarily with a uh, lack of awareness and a lack of understanding of, of more traditional uh, frameworks and, and pedagogy, but uh, it, is, it really is that individualized uh, approach that, that appeals to us and, ha- and continues to appeal to us as we look to our, our, our son's education as well. But when we looked at that, that pivotal moment, there, there's incredible cultural inertia around the idea that when you are six years old, you enroll and you go to a kindergarten because that is what you do. That right. is, uh, I would say, the, the broad cultural sense is that's what's good for the child. That's what's going to ensure they're going to have healthy, lifelong relationships. It's what's going to prepare them to be uh, efficient and effective. Um, I, I don't hide my biases in this or, or suggest that I'm objective at all. I think that when we look at some of the background of traditional educations as they were established, they make for good factory workers. They make for good <laughs> and orderly citizens. Um, they don't necessarily provide a framework for thinking and creativity and, and self-examination and discovery. So when we, we were making the decision of the kindergarten year for Emerson, uh, who's currently in her kindergarten year, her third year here at, at Bondec, we were really asking that question of what's best for her. Not, not what's convenient, not what's necessarily comfortable for us. From the beginning, uh, Bondec challenged us to examine what was about our comfort as parents and what was about Emerson's comfort and, uh, and support as, as a child and as an individual. Uh, we also weren't terribly interested in the idea of educational attainment, this, this idea of preparing her to be a good test taker. <laughs> we were much more concerned about um, her development of her self-confidence, her enthusiasm uh, for learning, her uh, individual kind of perspective of the world and worldview. We weren't concerned about her ability to memorize, which is something I was proficient at. I was a standout uh, memorize and regurgitate sort of student early on. Uh, I was much more concerned about her ability to understand that work. And that can only come through kind of that individual focus. Um, we, we ultimately, uh, through, through study of Montessori's work, um, but also the guidance, uh, the, the guidance here of, of Miss Wood and uh, the Georges and others uh, recognize this as a capstone of the experience. And we've seen that in Emerson already in this first kind of six month, the first half of the year. We see her taking steps that reflect leadership for the first time. I, I shared that my, my, one of my bigger concerns about her transition to public school education was perhaps that in some ways her sensitivity and her politeness would, would make her someone that became a follower rather than a leader. Uh, and I had concerns about what that would mean for her later in life. And this year we've seen her adopt her uh, adopt a different posture. We've seen her uh, take on kind of an accountability, uh, exhibit a, a level of d- discernment and empathy for others' needs uh, as much as her own. And so in, in this year, I've seen her transition from being kind of the posture of an apprentice uh, to, to, to being a, a collaborator, collaborator and co-leader and, and to own that both as a responsibility that she's accountable for but also a part of her identity. I think she enters uh, first grade, if she ends up in a traditional first grade classroom, she enters it with a level of ownership and a, and a quality of expectation 
that will differentiate her from her classmates. That doesn't mean it will be easy. Uh, yeah. I, I distinctly remember a, a memory as a fourth grader being told, you know, you're, why is it that you think you're you're different or special, uh, you know, relative to your classmates? I suspect that Emerson will have some of those conversations with teachers, and uh, and that's because she will come to the table expecting as much or more of them than they expect of her, and and that changes a power dynamic in a classroom. But what 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 it allows is that I know that she has developed through struggle, through challenge, through through work and discipline. She's developed a level of grit and resilience that will serve her for the rest of her career. When we look at uh, Clay Christensen's work, he's a Harvard professor that focuses on innovation and, and, and creative leadership. The number one characteristic that differentiates standout leaders in that space is grit. And Emerson has learned that sufficiently throughout her time here, but it's come to a point of, of resolution and awareness in the, in the last several months. Yeah. I have two questions for both of you, and we'll either one of you can take them. But it seems to revolve around two things. One, the question of expectations, and the question of assimilation. So the, the first one, and, and I think this is kind of a standard characterization as a cultural awareness, or an expectation that we have, is that how will the child be prepared for the school? That's the question we always seem to ask. Yet, we rarely ask, how will the school be ready for the child? Do you guys have any thoughts on, on that shift between the master and the disciple? Um, well, it's hard because we expect the, the child, um, and I think it's partially because of age prejudice and also because of group versus individual. We expect the child to be the one to to assimilate and to... Um, Are you answering two questions here at once? <laughs> if I can, pushing up sleeves. <laughs> um, but um, we expect them to be able to be the one who who changes um, and that they just cope with, um, with what is thrown at them. Um, but um, my hope is as a... As a teacher is that every child I send out into the world um, is, is um, fed by uh, a strong internal sense of integrity and of self-respect that allows them to see the things as they are and take from it what serves them and what serves um, their view of the world, which I hope is, is a very positive one. And that the other things, the the meanness or the bullying that we worry about in schools or um, possible um, biases of the teacher in what they present or in what they state as being a fact or in what they state as being important, that they'll be able to be respectful of that and to excel in that system in, in giving back what is asked of them, but to take it in and find their own personal truths in it. Um, and that's a lot to ask of a six-year-old. Um, but when they're, when they're met by, um, when they're met by prejudice, I hope that they respond with agree to disagree or, um, that they respond with, is that kind or helpful? Cause they've heard it from me so many times. Um, and, and we do expect them to go and be cooperative and to be, um, kind and helpful citizens and to go be a part of where you wherever you are because you don't want to walk into a room talking you want to walk into a room and 
and take the temperature of what is already existing and acknowledge the fact that what was here before will continue to exist um, and exists independently of me. Um, but what do I add to that? And each child I hope leaves my classroom knowing that they are valuable and important and, and that what they bring to the classroom or each day matters and that they matter. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, th I think culturally it's, it's, it's a, an interesting thing as you look at many cultures, but as, as a species, as human beings, we, we create myths to, uh, to provide for that framework of, of assimilation, right? So I, the, the one that, I, that, I, that comes to mind most readily is the Icarus myth, right? Like that we, we create these stories that say that flying, flying too high, sticking out, is, is going to you lead to your ultimate disaster, <laughs> right? Yes. Like this idea of being different is what will destroy you. And, uh, and then we create systems like, like the education system as it exists traditionally in the United States. We create systems to make sure that we reinforce that and we train people to not only know those myths and recognize those cultural uh, uh, expectations, but also that you're properly trained to fit within the myths' lessons. And I, it is, it is, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. It's, it's terrifying as a parent to think about that dissonance, right? That we, we have the, the great luxury of teachers like Charlotte that um, assure Emerson, that assure my daughter that um, being different. Um, uh, being led by fascination and passion, uh, having expectations of, of, of community, having expectations of um, e equality and, and, and values of, of change uh, are, are noteworthy um, ideals and, and, and noteworthy in practice, <laughs> not, not merely as virtues, but as, as something that we exercise. And that the system that she walks towards uh, is, is, is counter to that. So I, th I think the 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 challenges to allow for both both i think you did, it was wonderful the way you just framed it is is to be aware of what is and to determine how to cope and best best adapt and and rely on those skills of, of struggle and resilience and recognize that 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 isn't easy and, and allow yourself to in some ways grieve or allow yourself to you know be frustrated with that but to recognize what what's expected within those frameworks and then as parents to be able to provide outlets and vents that ensure that that doesn't result in, in, in something undesirable in the child, the frustration that passes the point of, of being able to be coped with. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to make sure that those, those um, opportunities to exercise whatever those passions are, recognizing if math is one hour a day and, and uh, your child needs four hours, uh, that you, <laughs> you find the ways to, to provide for that so that that, that desire is, is at least addressed or acknowledged and hopefully met. Yeah. I just realized that my questions that I asked both of you are like, what are the expectations and how do you assimilate? And those are top-down approaches. That's me stuck in a cultural rubric that no longer exists because for a Montessori student, the expectations are internal, not external. And the assimilation is one of uh, adapting to a new system and becoming a learner, just following their passions and wanting to learn. It's just amazing how deeply embedded these mindsets are in, in our language, in our society, in our culture, in the way we communicate with other people. You know, the, the, the biggest thing revealed to me in the conversation um, we had in the, in the classroom about uh, the challenges in that transition was actually 
that that element of community being missed. You know, right. it wasn't sitting at a desk in a row, which is what I fear for you know my son and daughter. It was the fact that they arrived day one and they didn't feel that support and they didn't feel that connection and they didn't feel that identity within a group, but respected individually. And they didn't see something that was accessible to everyone in the classroom. And there were divisions and there were exclusionary practices. And um, the idea that that would be something to be grieved is reflect, reflects a level of ideal idealism and optimism that uh, encourages me actually. So how that can be provided and created and, Assimilation to the extent of being part of a group isn't inherently bad, um, but losing individual identity and individual will, I think, is where it becomes concerning. But if there's a way for a child to exercise those desires for community and connection and to create those things, um, there's something wonderful in that. Yeah. That was, that was, to me, the, the lesson to take away from some of those conversations. Yeah. But probably the chief criticism for um, parents that are on the fence trying to make the decision whether they stay in Montessori for kindergarten or, or transition to a public school or a, a private school is basically that. Like, how are they going to transition? And they're really worried about being in a certain, uh, in a different environment with a different value structure and then going into one that's completely incongruous. So do you guys have thoughts on... So, so I, I, I hear that and understand that. And I think particularly 50 years ago or even 20 years ago, that would be more applicable. But in a, in a community like this one, which is pretty uh, tr- traditional, but, but particularly larger metro areas, you know, the likelihood of a child moving multiple times within their, their uh, school, their, their K-12 years is extremely high. I've, I've moved a dozen times over the last 20 years. And the likelihood that my son and daughter will be in another community at some point during their education is, is dramatically high. And, and so the idea that somehow we would be undermining their, their social foundations or their, their relation, the capacity for relationships or their level of inclusion, I think, uh, disregards a modern, uh, modern cultural uh, element, which is, which is that it's mobile, highly mobile, and that, that those things can shift and will shift and children will adapt and, and, uh, and cope and, and that that isn't reason enough to uh, disregard a process that's intentional and is framed in a way that this is a, a uh, kind of a, a moment of consilience for the child's learning over the last several years. Uh, to disregard that for some perceived social benefit seems, um, seems superficial, seem, seems short-sighted. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about like, how you perceived uh, Montessori kindergarten year as being the capstone to an investment that your family consciously made three, four years ago? Right. Well, I, I see it no different than, than in, in a lot of ways than my, my undergraduate study, right? So there was a little bit of English literature. There was a little bit of jazz history. There was a healthy scoop of political science and public policy. There was some economics mixed in. But it was that final year of bringing them together under uh, a dissertation and, and having a conversation uh, kind of across the broad scope of those learnings to have to teach within a, a capstone seminar as well as learn, to have to... Uh, be able to defend as as well as you know earlier regurgitation. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was it was that year that allowed everything to come together. And the idea that I would have taken all of those individual pieces and then left after after a junior year and not taken the opportunity to bring those things together in a unified way, not to allow them to 
fully formed or fully developed, not to allow them to come to a point of resolution, um, uh, it, it, we would we would think it's silly. We would look at that 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 student that left after their junior year and say, "Well, geez, I'm kind of concerned about them." Right. Um, but <laughs> but with the, with the Montessori process, because the expectation is that children will go to a, uh, a kindergarten in a in a public or even private you know school setting, go to a traditional kindergarten. You know, we we don't consider it in that same way because often we only have an adult's perspective, right? And from a, an adult's perspective, it's time for them to go to the next step. Uh, from that child's perspective, from that learner's perspective, this is the critical year to bring all those things together. Right. And um, I think that um, one of the arguments that um, we kind of hear from, um, if, if you're kind of, sometimes it's over and sometimes it's just needled out, is that um, we don't want our children to be too smart. You know, if they stay for another year, we don't want them to be too smart. And we don't want them to be too outspoken. We don't want them to, you know, well, what if they go to a traditional program and, and they don't sit still or they're disrespectful to their teacher or they, you know, all of these other negative qualities, um, which I think is um, selling that individual child short. Um, but it's also, I think, under there is this sense that um, of... If a child is smart or different in any capacity, they run the risk of being bullied. And that every parent's fear, I, I imagine, not being a parent myself, is that their child would be hurt in any way. And I don't want any child in my classroom to be hurt in any way. Um, but why is being smart a reason to be hurt? And um, I think an, another question is, along with that assimilation piece, is um, why are we okay with a, an outside environment that, that allows for that, that expects our children to sit down and be quiet if, if what they're being presented with in their educational day is not engaging to them and does not allow them the opportunity to actively participate um, or that um, in in a playground or um, children running wild type situation that um, children are allowed to get away with anything that is less than kind and helpful. Um, and so I think that we can have higher standards for um, our traditional environments if that's sports teams or if that's Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or if that's just school as it stands, um, instead of worrying about our children being too smart, um, how can we change it so that we can accept each other's differences and, and that what everybody brings to the table is um, valuable and can be tapped into to, to bring up the the level of expectations for the group. Yeah, it's it's that's it, uh, that's a, a fantastic point. There's no place else in our culture. We have a culture of refunds and replacements. There's no place else in our culture. We we get our iPhone, and if it had the slightest of an imperfection, 
uh, uh, that investment, we, we would return it and we would probably demand some sort of uh, additional incentive. <laughs> and, and, you know, if, if we were, were looking at a place of worship or a, or a gym or any, anything in our culture that we felt like it was dissonant in any small way or inconvenienced us in any small way, we would object to it and we would immediately remove ourselves from the situation. But that we can look at education in all of its imperfections and feel like we have no other option. It yeah. feels broken. It, it feels broken that we would willfully send a, a child into a situation where the expectation is one of bullying. We're going to create a core element of our curriculum to address it because the expectation is brokenness. Uh, it, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's really problematic when you, when it's framed that way. Or that like, um, that, that average is something to be aspired toward. Right. Because every child in my class is exceptional, um, and they're not exceptional in the same ways. Um, there, you know, there are children who are phenomenal helpers, and there are children who are phenomenal at helping by being an excellent model of how to focus on your own work. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that that we would expect or hope that they would all be the same kind of exceptional is undermining all of their incredible gifts. And it also returns us to your original point, Charlotte, which is like Montessori was specifically designed from three to six years old. And yet as a society, we have this conception that learning education doesn't happen until you are six years old. And, you know, back to your point, Hugh, which is like um, we know we go to college and college is a four-year program. And, And yet we just don't value that early period of growth and and that's really the time when all these trajectories of what it's going to be like to be a lifelong learner really set in. Yeah. Well, we got into some big questions today, and thank you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, having our next podcast. Thank you.